invite you to turn to the first chapter of Romans. We uh, continue to make our way through this letter. And I invite you to remain standing as we read together God's word. You only have to do it for just a minute. I think I mentioned last week that if you had lived in the days of Nehemiah, you would have had to stand all day to listen to the reading and the preaching of the word. This is just just for a minute. I want to read these 17 verses. And again, we, we've just begun to march through Paul's letter to the Romans. But there's a really important idea in this uh, passage in these 17 verses that keeps recurring, and it's this, this uh, idea of faith. Uh, and I think if you count them, you'll find that the word shows up, the word faith shows up six times in this passage, but it's there a seventh time in verbal form, that is in the form of a verb, down in verse 16, it's translated believes. So seven times the basic word shows up in this passage. It's an important word. And it's what we want to focus on this morning. So begin with me as we read together Paul's letter to the Romans, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you haven't left us alone in the midst of this world, walking around in darkness, left to our own resources, but you've spoken. You've spoken in language that we can understand, and supremely you have spoken in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom people saw and touched and handled and embraced. And we thank you for the scriptures, which are a record of his having come. Thank you that we can trust them. But we need your spirit as well 
So grant us your spirit. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Massage our hearts. Cause our hearts to be receptive to your word. Lord, you know everybody in this place. You know where we're coming from and you know what we need. So again, we ask you that for each one of us, you would give us what we need by your spirit, through your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may now be seated. I mentioned that uh, this word that is uh, translated faith appears uh, six times in its nominal form, that is, as a noun in these 17 verses. It appears one time in its verbal form, that is, as a verb in these 17 verses. Anytime somebody says something seven times in the space of 17 verses, you kind of get the idea that he cares about what he's talking about. Um, here's another thing for you to know. This is just the tip of the iceberg with respect to this word faith. Again, in its nominal form, by my count, which is an unofficial count, but by my unofficial count, as a noun, it occurs 37 times in Romans alone. And then it occurs as a verb another 18 times in Romans alone. In the space of 16 chapters, 55 times this word appears. Now, you know, talk to a University of Florida person about football, and you're probably going to hit something that they sort of care about, and they'll probably talk about the Gators and Tim Tebow and how the University of Florida is ranked number one in the preseason polls and got more first-place votes than any other college football team in the history of the rankings since the rankings. What do you, if they talk a lot about that, what does that tell you? It tells you they care. Paul talks a lot about faith because it matters to him. And we're going to see more of this next week. See, this is the way I can kind of reel you in who are here for the first time to come back again next week, maybe to hear more next week, because he's going to talk a lot about this in verses 16 and 17, which are sort of the transitional verses for this letter from introductory things to the body of the letter. And they also serve as sort of the theme verses for this book. Point is, faith is a big deal to the Apostle Paul. Faith is a big deal to the New Testament. Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times, if you get a concordance or you Google through some program that you can access, you know, you can Google all kinds of things, you, you can find out just how many times this word faith appears in the New Testament. It's a very big deal. And there are a couple of ways in which the word faith is used. And, and uh, I want to share those with you this morning. And I want to tell you that I think it's critical to understand both of them. When the New Testament, when Paul in Romans or in 1 Corinthians or in Philippians or Colossians or Ephesians, when the New Testament uses the word faith in the first place, it uses the word to describe, this is really important, to describe the objective content of the Christian faith. The objective content of the Christian faith. Let me give you just a few examples. There are many of these in the New Testament, but let me give you just a few. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Definite article and noun. The faith. Stand firm in the faith, Ephesians 4, 5. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's actually Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. One Lord, one faith. Objective content of the gospel. Colossians 1.23. If indeed you continue in the faith. Paul is encouraging these Colossians who've heard the gospel, they've responded to the gospel, at some level they've embraced the gospel. These folks were being harassed, okay? They didn't get to do what we do, sit in air-conditioned buildings, uh, in safety and security. They were outlawed. They were harassed. They were being persecuted. In the midst of that opposition, there was the possibility that they would leave the faith. And Paul's encouraging them to persevere, and to stand firm in the faith, in the gospel they've received, in the truth that they have embraced, the content, the objective content of the gospel. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, just a chapter later, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Or there's Jude... Chapter 1, verse 3, where Jude encourages people to continue to contend for the faith delivered once for all time to the saints. Those are five different passages that make this point. In the New Testament, faith is used as a reference to the objective content of the Christian faith. Okay? Now, why do I make a big deal of that? Well, I make a big deal of it for this reason. There is a pervasive tendency in our culture to relegate faith, and there is tremendous pressure in the culture directed at Christians to relegate faith to a place that is entirely personal and entirely subjective. There's a tremendous tendency in our culture to make faith entirely personal and entirely subjective. You've run into it in conversations. I'm just certain that you have. I certainly have. I'll share a story with you. My middle daughter, who honestly, I, you know, only share these stories because they're fun, but because they illustrate points. My middle daughter is not one of those precocious, was not one of those precocious spiritually precocious young people who never did anything wrong. Such a person doesn't exist. I trust you know that. So as I tell you this story, I don't want you to think that there's something strange about my daughter. There, there is a lot strange about my daughter. But she was in a conversation with a neighborhood friend. Along, She was about eight years old. And she was in a conversation with a little seven-year-old boy, and she wanted for this little seven-year-old boy to have a Bible. She asked him if he had a Bible, and he said no. And she wanted him to have a Bible. So she came home. She said, Dad, I want to get Brandon a Bible. I said, great, we'll get him a Bible. So we got him the Bible. She took the Bible to the house, gave it to Brandon. The next thing I know, the mother is over at my house, in my face, in my ear, telling me she doesn't like the fact that my eight-year-old daughter is being so pushy about what she believes. I said, I'm very sorry. But she went on to say the kind of thing that I suspect you have heard a thousand times. These things are personal matters. And it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. It doesn't matter what you believe. Now, for those of you who are new here, here for the first time, I'll say this for your benefit. I don't come here every Sunday morning to pick fights. 
okay? I don't come to pick fights. And I wasn't picking a fight with this woman, but I said to this woman, who was our neighbor, and I knew I was going to have to live next door to her virtually for who knows how long, I, I couldn't help but say to her, you don't really believe that. You don't really believe that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. We're walking down my driveway. I'm engaged in a conversation with her. And she looks at me startled, and I said, yeah, look, you don't really believe that. Few people in the history of mankind have been more sincere about what they believe than Adolf Hitler. And in your heart of hearts, you know that there is a true... I didn't go the whole, you know, the full Monty with her, but let me do it with you. You know in your heart of hearts that there is a truth outside your own heads, outside your own skin, outside your own hearts, outside your own perception of things, which is true, objectively true. And not only do you embrace it as true, but you believe that other people ought to embrace it as true as well. The idea that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely can't hold up. It won't hold up. Even the person who is an advocate of that position is trying to persuade you that it really does matter what you believe and that you should believe that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. Are you following me? I'm confused too. I, but somewhere in there, you know and I know that there's something outside of me that is true objectively so. And that is how the New Testament uses this word faith. It uses it to refer to the objective content of the, of the truth of Christianity, the objective truth of the gospel of Christianity, the good news of Christianity, and it remains true whether I embrace it and believe it or not. There's a bumper sticker that you've seen around, I suspect. I've seen it. What this bumper sticker does is take symbols from the various religions of the world. Have you seen this? Again, I'm not here to pick fights. If you have this bumper sticker on your car, let's, let's chat afterwards, okay? But you take all of these different symbols that come from all of the different religions of the world and philosophies and everything else, and you know what's on the bumper sticker. Coexist. Coexist. Now, I'll suggest to you that what is being suggested, probably being suggested by that, is that while there are differences among the world's religions and philosophies, the differences shouldn't make any difference. Because the only thing that really matters is that we get along. Now, look, I am all for getting along. But you've got to ask yourself, what are the implications of this? If the differences don't make any difference, if they really don't make any difference, I think you've got a problem on your hands. I think you've got some serious reflecting to do. Because these things don't have to do with the kind of thing that Stephanie was so helpful with as we put this building together. These things, these differences don't have to do with paint color and fabric or the kind of pizza you prefer. You like green, I like yellow. 
You like black olives? I like pepperoni. We're not talking about things like that. We're talking about ultimate reality. We're talking about the nature of God if he exists at all. And it simply cannot be the case that the differences don't matter. Either God is, meaning coextensive with everything that exists, meaning the chairs that you sit on are God, the hamburger that you eat later today is God, the fertilizer that you put on your flowers is God. That's pantheism. That is a worldview. That is a conviction about the nature of God. Either God is coextensive with everything, or there are many gods. That's the view of many of the Eastern religions. They are polytheistic. There are many gods, and those gods are vying for your allegiance and your attention. And if you do enough of the right things, and if you slay enough of the right beasts, and if you provide enough of the right offerings, then you'll placate one of those gods, and that god will befriend you. That's a possibility. You understand that Christianity teaches something wildly different. Wildly different. That there is one God. And he is infinite. And he is eternal. And he is unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is a personal God who speaks and who can be known, with whom we can have relationship. He is a God who created the universe, and while he fills the totality of everything that he has made with his presence, he is not coextensive with it. He is to be differentiated from it so that he is not changed when the universe around you changes. He remains unchanged. And this God who is infinite and eternal and unchanging is also good and gracious and benevolent and compassionate and powerful and is a radiantly beautiful King and Lord. It matters. And what of your destiny? What of your destiny? You see, these things matter. What of your destiny, your ultimate Destiny. Are you destined to lose your distinct individuality and simply be merged into the limited oneness, to be absorbed into the eternal consciousness with no hope of retaining your unique personhood, no hope ever again of beholding beauty as someone distinct and capable of appropriating from the outside things into your mind which you then would know to be beautiful? Are you, are you destined for endless, an endless cycle of lives coming back sometimes as a rodent or perhaps other times as a flower or some other form of life and all because of what you did in the previous life? I used to get a kick out of Shirley MacLaine, who in all of her previous lives was very, very smart, very, very rich, or very, very powerful. And I have to ask, Shirley, what did you do to screw it up that you came back simply as a Hollywood actress? <laughs> what is your ultimate destiny? Is it simply to live through this endless cycle of lives? Or are you... As the atheists, the people who don't believe that God exists, are you destined simply to return to dust, kept in a box someplace or buried in a bigger box in the ground? 
It matters. Or is your destiny, the destiny that is held out to you in the Bible, the hope, the great and glorious hope that is the true hope of every Christian, every person who believes the gospel, every person who has embraced Jesus Christ, that there is a great day of restoration coming, a great day when bodies and souls will be reunited, perfected, fully restored to enjoy and manifest a glory unlike anything any one of us has yet to see and behold. I did a funeral in this room yesterday. I did a funeral for a 35-year-old mother of two children who died suddenly of a brain aneurysm. I said this to these people. They showed images, pictures of Shannon on a screen here. I said to them, my hope is that these are not the last images that you will see of your beloved daughter. There is a day coming when Jesus Christ, the ruling and reigning king, will appear. And when he appears, graves will be opened and bodies will be restored and bodies will be restored to souls and people will be perfected in glorious righteousness to enjoy Christ, to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. Yes, real sand on real beaches, real waters, lapping on shores, real dancing, real singing, real joy, and without sorrow. No taste of grief, no tears. That's what I said to this family. That day is coming. My dear friends, it matters. It matters what you believe. And sincerity is not the test of what is true. What is the objective content of the gospel to which I'm referring? Paul summarizes it in verses 2 through 4 of this letter. This is one way of casting it. What is the objective content? Paul says he was set apart to be an apostle for the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is so much packed into those four verses, three verses. It was promised. It was fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, who is the King of glory descended from David. Jesus Christ Who died, that's not said, but it's implicit in what Paul says about the resurrection. He died, he was raised from death to life. If he wasn't raised from death to life, there's no purpose for us to be here. But beyond being raised from death to life, he is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's not said explicitly, but it is implicit in this word, Lord. He is the curios. He is the Lord of glory, ruling and reigning right now, upholding everything by the word of his power. That's orthodox, historic Christianity, true outside my own head, remaining true, regardless of whether I embrace it or not, but which when I embrace it, Paul says, it is the power of God for salvation, which we will look at in greater detail next week. So that's the first way that this is used, and the second 
Second, very simply, this term faith is used to describe the subjective and personal act of the will by which I entrust myself to the truth of the gospel. Let me say it again. The word is used to describe the response of the soul, an act of the will, by which I entrust myself to the objective content of the gospel, the truth of Christianity. The basic meaning of the word faith is to have confidence in or to trust or to entrust yourself to something. Now, that's a profoundly significant thing. It's a profoundly big thing to say that your confidence, your trust is in the gospel and that you have entrusted yourself to the gospel, which is to say you have entrusted yourself to the person who is at the center of this gospel. It means in the New Testament that you have abandoned all other trusts. You have abandoned all other confidences and have entrusted yourself solely and completely to the person who is at the center of this objective content of the gospel. Jesus Christ. Now, theologians and exegetes and folks who reflect on these things have reflected on this over the course of the centuries, and they've wondered. They've tried to come up with images and pictures and terms to describe exactly the nature of this New Testament faith. And in the Middle Ages, Latin actually helped. And please bear with me because this is helpful. Latin actually helped the theologians to articulate the unique, distinctive features of New Testament faith. There were three words in the Latin that could be translated belief. The first of them, and they all come over into the English language, interestingly enough. The first of them is the word notitia, which gives us our word notice. Okay? The second is the word assentia, which gives us our word assent. And the third is the word fiducia, which gives us our word fiduciary. If you have a fiduciary relationship with someone, you have a relationship of trust. Now, here's the difference. Let me illustrate it just a couple of ways, and then I'll be done. Let me illustrate it just a couple of ways. When you came into this room this morning, if I ask you the question, do you believe there are chairs in this room? You would have looked at me like I was nuts, right? What, are you a butterfly imagining you're a man or a man imagining you're a butterfly? Of course there are chairs in this room. You would have walked into the room if I hadn't asked you the question. Without noticing, you would have at least noticed that the chairs were there. And probably without thinking, you sat in those chairs. And here's why you sat in those chairs. You sat in those chairs because your previous experience gave you confidence that chairs will hold you up if you put your weight on them. So it didn't even occur to you to do the second thing, which is assentia. That is, to take careful 
um, observation of the properties of the chair. I mean, there are good chairs and there are bad chairs. You trusted that these were good chairs. You noticed that they were there. You didn't take time to examine them, to consider the properties of them. You did the third thing without even thinking about it. You fiduciated these chairs. You trusted these chairs. You sat in these chairs. You put the full weight of your body into these chairs. That's New Testament faith. It's not just noticing something. It's not just assenting to its properties, examining it. It's going beyond it. You see, you can believe at one level if I ask you if there are chairs. Absolutely there are chairs. If I ask you if they seem strong, you would look at them, you'd say yes. But you haven't believed in the chair until you've put the full weight of your person into the chair. It's New Testament faith. Let me give you another example. You go to a cocktail party or a party someplace. There's a cardiologist there. After the party, someone asks you, was so-and-so there? And you say, yeah, I think so. I think I noticed that he was there. But then you, you know, you're asked another question. Well, what, did you, what do you know about him? Well, I, nothing, but somebody else did. Come on. And so someone else who was in conversation with the cardiologist and actually had quite an engaging conversation with the cardiologist can tell you about the cardiologist, can tell you where he went to school, can tell you his resume, his credentials, and all of the rest of these things, that he is the foremost cardiologist in all of central Florida, perhaps all of the state of Florida, and he is among the most reputable cardiologists in all the country. You say, I believe that. The next morning, you wake up with pains in your chest. And suddenly, your relationship to that cardiologist takes on new meaning and significance. Because what you understand about that cardiologist is that the cardiologist has the ability to do something for you that you are powerless to do for yourself. And what you need now is a fiduciary relationship with that cardiologist. What you need now is to entrust yourself entirely to him and his expertise and ability to do for you what you are powerless to do for yourself. That's New Testament faith, my friends. New Testament faith involves Jesus Christ standing in the midst of a group of people just as we confessed this morning. I don't know if you saw this. But in our affirmation of faith, I'm sorry, in our opening prayer, we affirm that God sent his blessed son to preach to those who are far off. In the service of worship, it is Jesus Christ who is making his appeal to you. It is Jesus Christ who is directing your attention to himself. He is the objective content of the gospel, and he is offering himself to you as the one who is able to do something for you that you are powerless to do for yourself, and that is to give you salvation, deliverance, freedom, forgiveness, and the hope of final and complete restoration 
so that you may forever in his presence, delight in his presence, and know a joy unlike anything you've ever known or tasted before. Your response to that invitation is to abandon all other trusts as false gods, false messiahs, saviors that cannot help. And I'm talking about prestige. I'm talking about power. I'm talking about money and banks. I'm talking about good health. I'm talking about everything else. Abandoning all other trusts so that in Jesus Christ, the totality of your person comes to rest upon him. Now, again, this is something that for those of you who are new, not been here before, folks who are familiar with me and with this church have heard these things said before, but I feel so compelled virtually every week to say to this congregation as it gathers week by week, Do you know and have this fiduciary relationship with Jesus Christ? Is he the one in whom you trust? Is he the one to whom you look? Is he, as we say in this church repeatedly, your only hope in life and in death? Jesus Christ, promised in the scriptures, descended from David, lived, died, was raised in power, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in all glory, and who is present here by his Spirit, extending to you this summons to come and rest in him. Do you know this relationship? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've not left us alone. Thank you that you've spoken. Thank you that you've given us your son. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you fulfilled your father's purpose. You've come into the world to live for sinners, die for sinners, be raised for sinners, to ascend and now rule and reign so that sinners might be restored and have hope. And so, Lord Jesus, because you know each of us, would you wrestle with us? And where we have to be wrestled to the ground, would you wrestle us to the ground? Would you humble us? Would you break us in grace and mercy? Would you give us the grace that we need to trust you perhaps for the first time. Lord Jesus Christ, do this work, which you alone can do as risen King of glory, we pray in your name. Amen.